0: as we leave here as one people ringing out in our ears we should be saying and hearing he is king of kings and lord of lords and he will not give up on us welcome to first and foremost a weekly broadcast of first presbyterian church in the heart of downtown greenville Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you worship with us regularly, you will know we have been steadily working our way through the New Testament book of Revelation, and we are turning this morning to Revelation chapter 19. And if you have your Bible, will you turn to Revelation 19? We're coming to the second half of the chapter, which begins at verse 11. Chapter 19 is rejoicing in the fall of all that is evil and wicked, represented in Revelation by the symbolism of Babylon, and so we come to the second half of the chapter, beginning at verse 11, and John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on the white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word came across an illustration that I wanted to share with you this morning, and be patient with me while I read it to you. Vince Lombardi was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers, and during his years, they won the NFL championship five times. In July of 1961, when the team gathered for the first day of training, they were a little discouraged. The previous season had ended badly in a heartbreaking defeat when they lost the lead and ultimately the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. The Green Bay players had been thinking about their loss during the off-season, and they had come back ready to advance their game to the next level by working on all of the details that would help them win the championship. Coach Lombardi, however, had another idea. He held up a pigskin at that first team practice, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Lombardi's coverage of the fundamentals continued throughout the remainder of the season, and his team would become the best in the league at the tasks everyone else took for granted. Six months later, They won against the New York Giants 37 to nil, went on to win NFL championship, and it began with the words, this is a football. This morning, as we come to the latter section in Revelation 19, I cannot help but wonder if the Apostle John was a guest speaker to us this morning. He may well begin with these words. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. We live in a culture and a society when teenagers now go off to school and there is no guarantee they will come back. When John was writing to seven congregations in Asia Minor in the first century, they faced opposition, criticism, and threat. And John wrote to remind them of the basics of discipleship. What does it mean for an individual and a church and a society and a culture to submit and surrender to the rule and reign of Christ in their lives? today in the 21st century as it was in the first century. There are moments when we are lurching and teetering on the edge of moral and spiritual bankruptcy and chaos. And how do we respond? What do we need to do to say enough is enough? And if you have felt anything of the combined anger across this nation once again this week. Come with me, please, to Revelation chapter 19. Now, most of us would agree there have been times over the last few Sundays, as we have steadily worked our way through Revelation, that we have found it difficult. There have been moments when it has been overwhelming, intimidating, confusing... We've been left uncertain about the richness of the imagery and the symbolism and the apocalyptic language which John uses. And yet there have been other times when we have found ourselves in our imagination, in the deepest recesses of our heart and mind and soul, when we have been lifted heavenward into the very throne room of God. God and find Him there in all of His wonder and glory. And it has moved us profoundly and deeply. This morning, as we come to the latter section of chapter 19, that is my prayer for us once again, that we will find ourselves in the presence of Him who is transcendent in majesty He who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come again. That's what we need to understand this morning. It's Him our focus needs to be on. And John says exactly that as he takes us into this section. And he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. There are four or five times John uses the word open, uses it as a verb, and it happens in chapter 4, the first time. And he writes, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And John is inviting us to come in and see. It's almost as if he is saying, do you remember those days when you were seven and eight years old Just after Thanksgiving, when mum and dad would take you downtown to the large department store, and they just put up their Christmas display. And you would bring your hands up to your eyes and get your face as close to the glass as possible so you could peer in and see all the wonders of those wonderful toys you always longed for. And then once you'd taken in everything in the first window, you'd move to the next window, and then the third and the fourth and the fifth. That's what's going on here. John is saying, come, look, comprehend, understand grasp that God in His providential, sovereign care is not sitting back with His arms folded, shaking His head, tutting about the state of the world, but He is engaged and orchestrating and bringing to pass and engineering His purpose and will for all of humanity. And that is written large throughout the book. Come and look, says John, there is an open door in heaven. And then he takes us to the next section. And when he takes us to chapter 11, he writes, in the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And once again, you get that sense of John inviting you in to see the Lion of Judah, who then becomes a lamb, who wanders towards the throne of God, who's sitting with a scroll and seven seals, and as each each seal is opened, you hear the refrain, and He will reign forever and ever. And with all of the imagery and all of the symbolism that lodges in the imagination and goes beyond the imagination into the heart, John is beginning to say, do you understand the depths of what is taking place here, that God is bringing salvation to all of humanity? And he's working out his purposes again and again and again. And then when he moves us the next time, he takes us to chapter 15. And he writes, the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And if you remember that section, he explained to us the cosmic war between good and evil was taking place. And one of the refrains that comes to my mind each time I study Revelation is this. Things are not always as they seem. And John describes for us a red dragon and the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we wrestle through all of that. And John was saying again and again and again that evil will rear its ugly head pernicious wickedness and violence and depravity and chaos and illness and greed and corruption and famine will continue year after year, but not into infinity. Because in the midst of it all, God is working out His purposes, and we see it right here. And when He brings us to chapter 19, as we are exploring this morning, once again he invites us in, and he says, and I saw heaven open. Now you'd imagine that John would then go on to say, look at this, and look at that, and listen to that choir sing, and look at the cherubim and the seraphim. And he doesn't. John doesn't invite us to focus on a place Neither does he say to us, I want you to do, or I want you to be, or I want you to go. He wants us to focus on a person, the risen, exalted Christ. And notice what he says, And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Why Faithful and True? True. For this reason, he is faithful in love, faithful in grace, faithful in answered prayer, faithful in forgiving sin, more ready to answer prayer than we are to pray more faithful to us than we will ever be to him. He is faithful and true. He is reliable. You can count on him. That's the point he's making here. He's saying, look, he's faithful and true. And some of you are already ahead of me in your mind and saying, I remember another time where he did almost exactly that. I remember when In John's gospel, John recorded the incident where John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And throughout his gospel, John is pointing to Christ just as he is throughout Revelation. Look, comprehend, understand. And we see him on a horse. And of course, we're immediately thinking of a horse being victorious, a powerful king, and that should be the case. But we're sometimes a little misled in this chapter when we think of him riding off to that final battle against evil and all of its debilitating, horrific consequences. And I say it's misleading for this reason, because the climatic final battle was fought at Calvary where he died for our sins and he became sin for us it wasn't that he was simply blamed for our sin the scripture puts it this way he became sin for us that was the greatest battle of all time And now, in eternity to come, he is beginning to apply all that was accomplished back then. And he is coming finally to put an end to the horrors of war and the depravity of humanity, the selfishness of sin. And he's bringing it to an end. And he rides to capture and incarcerate those who are responsible for it. After millennia, of chaos and war and violence. He brings it to an end. He is faithful and true. And notice what else is said. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. The question, of course, is, what is that name? why is it hidden from us? Shouldn't we know? Well, oceans of ink have been spilled on this very subject as New Testament scholars have written volumes on what this means. And after you go through the endless volumes, in essence, what they tell you is this, we don't actually know. But we know a couple of things. And they tell us this, that when you know someone's name, there is a certain sense, and you can't push this illustration too far, but there's a certain sense in which you have power over that person. If you see a friend walking down the opposite side of the street, and you wave across the street, and you say, John, Tom, Frank, and they see you, and they come over to speak to you, that's the implication. You have some measure of power over them. Do you remember when you were misbehaving as a youngster and your mother got so frustrated with you, she gave you your first name, your middle name, and your last name, and she instantly got your attention? She had power over you? That's what New Testament scholars suggest here. But what we can say with certainty is this, that we know His name. He is Lord of lords, and King of kings. He is Lord God Almighty. He is Son of God and Savior. He is faithful. He is true. He is wonderful counselor, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, mighty God. That's who He is. And notice what is coming out of His mouth. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood. Why? Because of Calvary and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in white linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Why from his mouth? Why not in his hand? Why from his mouth? Because John knows what the Scripture teaches. And if you turn all the way back to the first book in Genesis, and you open those early chapters, what do you discover? In the beginning, God. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. All he had to do was speak. Let there be light let it be night and day. In Mark's gospel, Mark powerfully reminds us of the power of the spoken wish of God. When he records an incident of Jesus going to a family home where a twelve-year-old was dead, and he goes up into her room with mom and dad, and Peter, James, and John, and he reaches out and he speaks to her in words that her parents would use in a language she would recognize. And he says to her, Tiletha kum little girl, I say to you, get up. And she'd been dead. And now she comes to life. And in John chapter 11, he stands at the tomb of Lazarus and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gets up Why? Because in the call of God is the sovereign, creative, sustaining power of God to bring new life, what is going on here. That's why when he speaks, he brings to pass his purpose and his will. And throughout history, as we said earlier, he's been engineering and orchestrating and bringing to pass, moving towards the culmination of all of history and all of eternity. And it's right here. And no wonder, no wonder they cry out, King of kings and Lord of lords. No wonder. Now, you may be with us this morning and saying, Richard, I hear that. I understand what you're saying. But allow me, please, to apply what you're saying. I understand in the first century, they were going through difficult days. I know they were marginalized and minimized as a new faith. But how does this apply to us? In the 21st century, in our own cultural setting, in our society today, how do we take this? How do we begin to apply God's word for us? Well, let me suggest this. We live in a culture and society where life is no longer considered sacred. I hinted at it at the beginning of our study this morning. That our children and our grandchildren are no longer safe in school or in church or in a shopping mall. Our moral and spiritual standards, as I said earlier, are lurching towards chaos and moral and spiritual abyss. How many more shootings will it take before action is taken? What are we to do? How do we respond? What do we do with the anger and the frustration that boils up inside us when we see one more event of senseless violence achieve nothing, nothing, and devastated and crippled families for life? What are we to do? Well, allow me to suggest this, that tomorrow morning we get up, and we begin a new day, and we begin a new week. And as a church and as individuals, we stand firmly on the core values that we hold to be self-evident, that life is sacred, and that every life is of value and worth. And when Hollywood grandiose violence and mayhem and chaos every week with a new release in the cinema, we need to say, enough, stop it. Can we simply blame that? No. There are a multiplicity of reasons, but let's at least take a stance and say there are such things as moral and spiritual standards, and human life is sacred from conception to the grave, and we need to value it and celebrate it what else do we do? We stand for values in our day-to-day place of work. We pray with our children. We bring them to church. We engage and we equip ourselves week by week to live out our faith in the messiness and distraction of sinful life and a society who's looking for answers, we need to say there is a better way, and it's a way of love and grace and prayer and modeling for a world longing for reality to say there is another way. How can we be sure? How can we be certain? How can we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God will not give up on us and will not abandon us to the depravity of humanity and the senseless violence of our society? How can we be certain? How do we know for sure? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. And He loves us with an everlasting love. And all of eternity is moving towards His purpose and the fulfillment of His promise. And tomorrow, as we go through the day, and into Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and as we leave here as one people, ringing out in our ears, we should be saying and hearing He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and He will not give up on us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture. Enable us, please, to live in the light of Your promises. To stand firm for Christian moral values and principles. To hold on to the belief that character matters. Truth is important. Violence is despicable. Human life is to be celebrated. Father, enable us, please, to be the church you long for us to be at the heart of this city. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Have you missed a Sunday? Go to our website to watch previous broadcasts, download a podcast, or purchase a CD or a DVD. And don't forget to connect with First Pres by liking us on Facebook and Twitter, signing up to receive emails, or requesting prayer online.